0: If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. We begin back in our series on Romans. It's been a while. And uh, we are going to look at what most scholars on Romans consider the most important paragraph, not just in Romans, but in the Bible uh, you actually have people saying this, commentators saying that over and over, and I would agree. And if it's the most important book or paragraph in the Bible, that means it's the most important paragraph ever written. Uh, and in this paragraph we're about to look at, you find all of, all of those Christian words, the ones you've grown up with your whole life. Righteousness, justification, redemption, propitiation, uh, grace, faith, forgiveness. All those words are going to be tightly packed together. It's a very dense paragraph, but but not in a negative sense. It's it's more like, you know, one of those really rich desserts you have. Uh, You you can't eat it fast. You have to eat it slowly, a little bit, slice by slice. Uh, So we're actually going to be in this one paragraph for several weeks. Uh, Now, I know... Some of you have already uh, probably checked out uh, because I said it was going to be really dense, but I just want you to hang in there, all right? We're going to shake off the cobwebs in just a little bit and bring you back up to speed in Romans. So we're going to pick up where we left off, Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped. And the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction And the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Father, I pray that you would give us open minds and hearts to receive what you would have for us. Lord, we want to hear you. Father, we want to become more like your son, Jesus. So I pray that my words would fall to the ground and blow away and not be remembered anymore anymore. Lord, may your words remain, and may they change us. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, So this past week was a a life-changing, kind of momentous week um, for the Brooks family for a couple of reasons. Uh, First, I took my oldest daughter uh, down to Auburn, and I moved her into her dorm, Uh, and that was almost a surreal experience for me. I mean, she has... Lived under our roof for 18 years, and uh, and so to let her go, uh, it had as you would say all the feels. Okay, there were there was all the feels. Um, of course, excited, but it surprised me how much I've cried, uh, and I'm not a crier. Um, I mean, I've given myself stitches on multiple occasions and not a tear. Uh, I dropped Caroline off at Auburn, and I am just boohooing like crazy. Um, and, and so we did that. And can I just briefly say thank you, church, um, for coming alongside Lauren and I and helping us raise Caroline. Um, Any parent will tell you that you don't raise your children alone. And when you're part of a church, you realize how much you need your church to come alongside you and to encourage you as parents and to help raise your kids. And so thank you. Uh, I was talking to Caroline uh, about just her childhood and about growing up in this church, and I love what she said. She goes, Dad, you know what my earliest memories of church are? I was like, what? She said, it was you coming to me and saying I needed to clean up the toys off the floor, um, and I needed to help you pull out chairs so the church could gather at our house. And those are her first memories of church. She has never thought of church as a building you go to, but it was always a people who gathered together. Um, because, you know, Redeemer started in her house and, and uh, she associated it with just hearing and seeing familiar faces coming into her home and singing songs. And then she said, and dad, you teaching really boring things, so I will go out and play. Um, but, but I love like that that was her early view, her, her formative views of church. And many of you who were there in that living room during those times um, have stayed a part of her life. And so thank you. Uh, Caroline actually stopped by O'Henry's um, Monday. I was working on the sermon. She knew I'd be there, and she just wanted to talk for a little bit, and then, then we start boohooing in front of everybody at O'Henry's. Um, but, but I had this moment of clarity as I was talking to her, um, getting ready to send her to Auburn. In that moment, I couldn't care less what her major was. Couldn't care less. I couldn't care less what she decided to do for a career. I couldn't care less if she decided to remain single or to ever get married. All I wanted as a parent was her for to, to know Jesus. That was it. As as you are releasing your child out there, that's really all you want for your child is for them to know Jesus. So that was the first life-changing uh, moment I had this week. The second was this, uh, someone exposed Lauren and I, um, not to COVID, but they exposed us to the show Alone. Uh, so if any of y'all, I don't know if you've ever seen Alone, uh, but it rocked our world. I, I, I hate even that the, the words binge watch, hate it, detest, never binge watch anything. I binge watched Alone. Uh, one of the seasons this week. I, I couldn't get enough of it. The, the whole premise, if you haven't watched it, is uh, they drop some, some person just out in the middle of the Alaskan wilderness and just say survive. And it's, it's my dream world as an introvert. <laughs> uh, so it's what I want to be. And, uh, and so uh, whoever survives the longest gets like a million dollars or something. But one of the reasons I loved watching the show is because after just a few weeks, people begin to get really introspective. Um, you know, they're always having to journal and to talk to the, to the camera that they bring with them, and, uh, and they start changing. After a few weeks, um, most of them couldn't care less about the money. They're like, you know, I went into this because I wanted to win a million dollars, but now I've just realized, like, that's not the important things in my life. And they begin thinking about their family, begin thinking about their faith. Uh, a few more weeks go by, if they ever make it to like 50 days in, I mean, they're like looking at the camera going, who am I? What's the purpose in life? Why am I here? I mean, they're asking all of the really big questions, questions that they have been drowning out through their busyness, but now they have all of this time to actually think deeply about what matters. So with Caroline going off to college, that combined with this alone, I've, I've begun to think, what actually matters? And it's one of the reasons I love Romans. I love it that we're getting back into Romans because that's what Paul's been doing. Paul is telling us what really matters. And he has thought deeply about the things that he is about to present to us. Many, many years, he has been thinking deeply about these things. Who is God? Who are we? Uh, are we responsible to live a, a certain way before God? God. Uh, What does sin look like? How do we get rid of sin? Can we like All of these big, huge questions he's been thinking about. And his conclusion is similar to what I had with Caroline. He just wants us to love Jesus. He wants us to know him and to love him more. All right, so let me catch you up to where we are in Romans. It's been a while. Uh, The first couple of chapters of Romans, Paul's laying out an argument that there actually is a God. Um, And basically his argument that there is a God is, you know it, I know it. (laughs) I mean, let's not fool ourselves. Everyone knows. It's like written in our DNA that there is a God. So he doesn't so much try to prove it as just state it as a fact that we all know, even though some suppress it. And then he says, we also all know this. We have sinned against that God. He so said, it doesn't matter if you've grown up in church and you've opened your Bible where, of course, you can see how you've sinned against such a God. It doesn't matter if you've, if you've lived that way or if you've never darkened the door of a church before. You've never opened up a page of scripture. You also know you have sinned against such a God. He says, and you'll be held responsible. Now, God is fair. He's not going to judge you according to his Bible. He's going to use your own words against you. He's going to say, have, have you ever sinned against your own conscience? Have you ever done yourself what you have judged in others? And what we're going to find is that we all stand condemned before this God who has created us. And so that brings us into chapter 3 to verse 19. When he says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. And so, Paul here is using courtroom language. He's saying the evidence against humanity is so overwhelming, so devastating, so damning that when it comes time to our defense, we have nothing to say. Our mouths are stopped. This isn't like one of those, you know, courtroom dramas or movies in which it's time for the defense and it looks like the person's about to be declared guilty, but then somebody bursts through the doors. Hands a note to the judge or says, I've got new evidence, or a new witness comes forward. There's there's no nothing like that. It's time for us to stand before the judge and give our defense. And there's no one coming to our defense. And we have no excuses. And we open our mouth and we're like, "Ah." and we close it. And so now we are waiting for the verdict. We're waiting for the verdict. Uh, That's where we left off in Romans. By works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. And then we went off to study the Ten Commandments. Do you remember that? Because we wanted to see if Paul was telling the truth. I mean, can we by works of the law be justified in his sight? So we went through the Ten Commandments. How did y'all fare in that? Are you justified in his sight? We started realizing, okay, none of us have kept the Ten Commandments. And now we're at... The second half of verse 20, which is where we left off. So this is all new. Everything before that review. This is our first new statement we've been looking at in Romans. Paul says, through the law comes knowledge of sin. Now the church-going religious people in Paul's day would have bristled against that statement. They would not have liked it at all. They would have said, Paul, no, 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 no. Through the law comes knowledge of God. Through the law, we are taught how to please Him. And if they had said that, they would have been 100 percent right, because that is true. Through the law comes knowledge of God. It's how we know Him. Through the law is how we learn to live a life pleasing to them, to God. Paul wouldn't have argued against him in that. But Paul has been pondering a new purpose for the law. Is there an additional purpose? If you remember when we introduced the Ten Commandments, um, I said that's not just the Ten Commandments, but there's actually 613 different laws that we have in the Old Testament. 613 laws that we find in the first five books of the Bible known as the Torah. And the way that these laws come to us are completely unique in human history. There was nothing like it at the time of Israel. There's nothing like it now. Uh, for instance, if you were to look at you know law documents now, look at the U.S. Constitution, look at the Alabama Constitution, read those. I spent a good bit of time this week reading through, the, through those. By a good bit of time, I mean I glanced at them. Okay, you know, I, I just kind of Wikipedia them and glanced at them a little bit. They're so boring. I mean, they read like a dictionary. It's just. Entry, 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 it's just law, 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 new heading. Law, 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 new heading. It's very systematic, very, very boring. But it's exactly what you would expect when looking at a law document. There's a reason we pay lawyers so much, is because they essentially just read a dictionary for a living. No one wants to do this. The Torah, however, is completely different. It's not like that at all. For starters, you can't pick up, the Bible, and, and if I were to say, turn in your Bible to the section on parenting, where do you go? Or if I were to say, turn in your Bible to the section on how to live a godly single life, how to date, where do you turn? There are no tabs in your Bible. There's no headers in which you turn to different sections. The Bible's not structured that way. The law's not structured that way. What we have are stories. Stories embedded in the law. You don't find that in the U.S. Constitution. You don't read things like, you know, when George Washington, he crossed the Delaware, and after he crossed the Delaware, he had this new idea for a new law. You don't have any of that. But you know what we have in the Torah? 59 chapters of stories before we get to the very first commandment. 59 chapters of story after story before you get to the first law's. You don't get to Mount Sinai until Exodus chapter 19. So as far as a legal document, when we call this the law, it's a pretty poor law book. It's actually a pretty terrible legal document as far as legal documents go. And Paul is pondering why. Why did God present us the law this way? If the law was just about giving us rules to follow, he would have just done that. Rule, 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 rule. Why embed them in all of these stories? Why do we have to learn about Adam and Eve, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses? Why do we learn stories about the golden calf or Korah's rebellion or wandering around in the desert for 40 years? What's the point of that? And what you begin to realize as you're reading through the law, you begin to see a pattern emerge. And I found that that most Christians are actually pretty oblivious as to this pattern concerning the law in the Old Testament because uh, most people, they kind of think of the law just kind of fell down from the sky in one chunk. You know, God's up there, he's like, catch Moses, and he throws him 613 laws, you know, down from heaven, and we get it all in one chunk. But that's not how the law was given the law was given over a span of 40 to 50 years. 40 to 50 years, and what we would typically have is God would give some law, and then he'd have some story. Some time would go by, years would go by. He'd give some more law, some more years would go by, and he'd give some more law. This is the pattern. Exodus 20, God gives the Ten Commandments. The people receive it with joy. The people immediately go and break it by worshiping a golden calf. God punishes them. They think it's all over. God says it's not all over. I'll give you some more instruction. He gives them more law. To which the people respond by immediately breaking it. To which God punishes them. And the people think it's all over. God says it's not over. I'm going to give you some more instruction. To which the people gladly receive it. To which they break it almost immediately. They think it's all over. God says it's not over. I'll give you some more instruction. And this goes on over and over and over. Each time God's people, after they break the law, they think, oh, you know what was wrong is we didn't quite have enough clarity. If we had just gotten a little bit more laws, then we could have figured this out. And God's like, okay, here's some more. And here's some more. Law, sin, judgment. Some more law, some more sin, some more judgment. Some more law, even more sin, even more judgment. Sometimes God's law that he gives the Israelites It's a direct correlation to the sin that they had just done. For instance, at one point, uh, they had just sinned. God sent a plague. He had killed thousands of people. So you have dead bodies everywhere. So you know what the next chunk of law God gives them is about? Purification. What do you do when you touch dead bodies? How do you dispose of them? How do you bury them? How do you know if somebody's got a disease? It follows very naturally with what was happening with them because of their consequence of sin. So this is the pattern that we find over and over. Instruction, sin, more instruction. More sin, even more instruction. And so with this in mind, what do you think the purpose of the law is? Why is the law embedded in all of these stories of failure? It's to show you that you don't need more law is to show you that there's something horribly wrong with your heart. And it doesn't matter if God gave you 10,000 more rules. You would never obey them. Because there is something deeply wrong in here. And what can fix it is not more instruction. You actually need a change of heart. And this is what Paul's been pondering here. Something has got to be done with our hearts. We don't need more law. Even Moses understood this when he was giving out the law. At one point, Moses gives out another chunk of law to them. He goes, are you guys going to obey this? And they all go, yes, we will. And Moses' response is, no, you won't. And you can almost sense this fatigue with him. No, you're not going to obey. I mean, we all know what's going to happen. He actually says, your hearts are hard. He uses the same language that's used to describe Pharaoh's heart. And he uses it to describe the people of God. You have hard hearts. And you know why Moses knew that they would never keep the law? Because he couldn't keep the law. God gives him a commandment and he breaks it. And Moses is thinking, guys, if I can't keep God's law, I know there's not a chance that you're going to keep God's law. And it wasn't just Moses. We see this repeated on and on throughout Israel's history even with the really good guys. You look at King David. I mean, David's described as a man after God's own heart, meaning that this is a man who wants to follow God, wants to obey him, wants to keep his law. David is the one who wrote the Psalms, and in the Psalms, he says things like, Lord, I meditate on your word day and night. It's always before me. And then David breaks all 10 commandments. I mean, I don't know if he broke the Sabbath or not. But the other nine, just at a cursory glance, David broke them all. Uh, I mean, thou shalt not murder, kills Uriah. Thou shalt not commit adultery, sleeps with Bathsheba. Thou shalt not steal, well, he stole Uriah's wife. Thou shalt not covet, well, he coveted after Bathsheba. He inviolates the entire second tablet, Thou shalt not lie. Well, he lied like crazy to cover up his sins. Even things like idolatry or graven images. You read in 1 Samuel that he had a household idol. I mean, it's almost like David took the 10 commandments and he used it as a a list to break. I broke that one, that one, that one. I've almost got, I got a 90. I just need to break one more Sabbath. This is one of the good guys. And he can't keep it. And so Paul Stinking. thinking, David can't keep it, Moses can't keep it and the way the laws come to us, law, sin, more law, more sin, what exactly is the purpose of the law? I made a mistake a couple of years ago, um, I gave my, my daughters for Christmas, just one of the presents was one of those little, um, those little makeup mirrors. You know, those little circular concave mirrors uh, that magnify every flaw. So, we all share one bathroom at our house, uh, which means it's there, which means I look at it way more than they do, okay? <laughs> and so, uh, you know, you look at yourself in the mirror and you're like, I don't look bad. And then you look at yourself in that, you're like, oh my gosh. I mean, you're like, you're looking, you see every single imperfection. Every pore is, is just like a meteor crater there, right on your face. It just exposes you. And Paul's saying, that's the law. That's what the law did. The flaws were always there. And But when we looked at the rest of the world, we kind of thought, hey, we're okay. And Then, then God holds up the law to us, and we look at and we're like, oh, my gosh. We see every flaw. That's what the law does. So that brings us back to Romans here. Paul lays out this airtight case that none are righteous, no, not one. All stand guilty before a holy and just God. When it comes time to our defense, we have none. We just have to shut our mouths. And now it's time to await the sentencing. What will the verdict? We know the verdict's guilty. what's, what's our sentence? And once again, we could go to the Old Testament and find the pattern and know what our sentencing is. I mean, you see it first in the garden. Adam and Eve, they're given a commandment. They break it. What does God do to them? What is their punishment? A little feedback here. What happens to Adam and Eve? They die spiritually dead, and they're exiled from the garden. God removes them from the garden, banishes them from his presence, So then, you see the same situation unfold with Adam and Eve's descendants, with all of Israel. God gives them much more law. Then over the course of hundreds and hundreds of years, they keep breaking and breaking and breaking these laws. So what does God do to them? Exile. He sends in the Assyrians, sends in the Babylonians, destroys them, carries them out to exile. The temple is destroyed, and they are banished from the promised land. Adam and Eve, sin, exile. Ancient Israel, sins, exile. Now it's you and me. We're given God's law. We haven't kept it. We're guilty. What's the sentence? Exile. We are to be banished and sent away from his presence forever. The law has never saved anyone. All it's done is expose us and shown the evil that's in our hearts. This is why Paul says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And now we get to that glorious paragraph in Romans. Now we get to verse 21. So get back in your Bibles, look at verse 21. But, we're going to stop there. That's all I'm getting. All right. We're going to do one word. One word of verse 21. But, but I don't have time to do more words than that. I mean, when you look, you look forward on that and you see all those big words, the sanctification, redemption, the atonement, propitiation, all that. We don't have time to get into that right now. But just know that with that one word, but Paul is saying that everything before is about to change. So far, all you've gotten is bad news, but you're about to get the most glorious news. Paul's going to take time in this next paragraph to explain the gospel. You've been told the gospel before, but he is going to actually explain how it all works together. He's going to talk about how salvation happens, how forgiveness actually happens, how God can remain just and still forgive. He's going to spell all of that out for us as to how we can be forgiven of our sins. But I don't have time to go into all of that. We're going to look into that next week. But I can't leave you without hope. You need to feel the but. <laughs> there is hope. And you don't have to know what all of those words mean in order to know that hope. I know that some of you, um, some of you in here have have come kind of a nominal exposure to the church. Christianity, you've been kind of in and out of church, southern Christianity your whole life. And honestly, you would say when you walk into a church you're just intimidated because you hear those words. You hear people talking about justification, hear people talking about the blood, um, talking about redemption, and and those words just intimidate you because you really don't even know what they mean. And so you kind of check out and you leave and you feel like an outsider. I want you to know that you don't have to know what those words mean in order to be saved. Uh, Recently, one of my favorite pastors, Alistair Begg, uh, he taught on on the gospel and really boiling down the basics of the gospel. Um, And he used just a very simple illustration to point this out that's always stuck with me. It actually just came out just a few months ago. Um, He said, imagine, if you will, the thief on the cross uh, so if you're a thief on the cross uh, and Jesus looks at you and says, today you will be with me in paradise. Now imagine that thief dying. Now use your little holy imagination here. So that thief dies. You know, he goes up to the pearly gates. He's talking to St. Peter. Um, by the way, none of this is scriptural, okay? I don't, don't, I don't want your emails, okay? I realize this is holy imagination here. We're just playing, teasing this out. So he, he walks up to the pearly gates and Peter says, hey, um, how can I help you? He goes, well, I'd, I'd like to get into paradise. And Peter says, great. So you do understand like, that you are saved by grace through faith. And this thief is like, what are you talking about? I have no idea what you're talking about. Peter goes, huh. Okay, well, you at least understand what justification means. You've been justified, Right. And the guy's like, justification, I don't, not only do I not know what it means, if you were to ask me to spell it, like, I I couldn't do that either. Peter's like, what about propitiation, atonement, do you know any of those things? And he's like, no. (sighs) At least tell me you know what the blood of Jesus accomplishes. I have no idea, sir, what the blood of Jesus accomplishes. I right, just hold on one second, I had to go get my supervisor. You know, so Peter goes and fictional once again, and like he gets he gets Michael the archangel, you know, they come back and he's like, hey, there's a guy who wants to get into heaven, he's like, he doesn't know these things. And Michael goes, I, I know what to do. All right, I know what to do. Um, so are, are you wanna you want to get into heaven? And the thief is like, yes. It's like, great, that's, that's wonderful. Did you grow up in church, open a Bible? I'm like, I don't know, none of those things. I'm like, huh? Okay you at least know about the virgin birth, right? What? There's a virgin birth? (laughs) That's amazing, Uh, but I'd never heard about it. All right, final question. Please tell me you at least know about the Trinity. You got to know who God is. He exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the thief is like, can you explain that to me again? It's one person, one God, three, no, that doesn't really even make much sense to me right now. Peter, Michael, I'm, you can ask these questions all day, and I will not be able to give you an answer. But you know what? The guy on the middle cross said I could come. And Peter says, "Oh, we'll come in." That's the gospel. You don't actually have to know all of those big words. You don't have to pull out the Christian dictionary to like know all these things. It's that simple. The guy on the middle cross said you could come. If I could sum up the gospel in a nutshell, it's just two words. Jesus saves. And if you trust him, he will save you. You don't have to know all of the mechanics. Something just has to be stirring in your heart toward whatever faith is there. You just say, Jesus, save me. Because Jesus has said you could come. If you would pray with me, church. Lord Jesus, I pray that those who have not ever heard your invitation would so clearly now in this moment through your Holy Spirit hear you calling them. You have invited them to a life eternal. And I pray they would trust you for that. For those who are so intimidated by church and all the Christian lingo, Lord, I pray those things would just blow away right now. And they would clearly see you, Jesus, and hear you calling them. We thank you for the glory of your gospel that you have not left us in your sin in our sins, but you have reached out and you have saved us. We pray this all in the strong name of Jesus, Amen.